to the Real Marathon Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the best in film each and every week. I'm Rob Carraher. And I'm Danny Carraher. And today we are moving into our eighth installment of the Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson Marathon uh, with the Grand Budapest Hotel. But as always, we are going to start today's show by talking about some of the stuff that came out this week. Um, it, overall, this week wasn't as big of a week as some of the previous ones, but um, we it's still there are some some bigger titles, uh, and so we're going to talk about a few of those. So the biggest title that came out this week was called Malignant, and this is a horror film uh, that that seems to be about a woman who is. Uh, somewhat mentally tortured by visions of uh, murders, and uh, I I haven't watched the trailer for this. Um, this is an HBO Max and theater release, uh, and so if I wished to see this film, uh, I could see it right now without even having to go to the theaters. Um, but right now, this film has a six point three on IMDb and a fifty Metascore. Kind of uh, what is to be expected from a a horror movie, uh, kind of in the in between a little bit. Um, but I th I think that if you are a fan of horror movies, that this may be something that's quite worthwhile watching. Um, if not, then it's definitely a a skipper. Uh, Danny, you have anything about *Malignant*? I, I can't believe you haven't seen the trailer for this because it seems like it's everywhere on social media and it shows up on tv all the time if you're watching tv but i feel like i've only seen this trailer a thousand times um this is a movie that's directed by james wan who's done some uh horror stuff in the past uh i think most notably he might be um part of like the conjuring like An annabelle and things like that and yep. so um you know he he's done horror before and or maybe it's yeah the Conjury, Insidious he's done those and he did so the Saw movies yep and or so he was part of the Saw movies at least definitely a you know going back to kind of what he what he's known for I think but I don't know I I think that uh, this is the type of movie that I might still see even though it might not be that great of a movie it's still kind of a fun idea for a horror movie yeah um. I guess we'll kind of wait and see. Once again, we, we talk about how there are those movies that may be interesting to catch, but uh, because there are so many good movies that we still haven't seen yet that are constantly coming week out week after week, mm -hmm. uh, this one ends up kind of falling down that, that list a little bit. Um, so that was kind of the big movie that came out this week um, in a more wide wide uh, release um, kind of schedule. Uh, another one, which we actually both saw, is The Card Counter. And this stars Oscar Isaac. And uh, this is a Paul Schrader-directed uh, film who he directed a couple years ago, first reformed. He's more known for his screenplay work, specifically for Martin Scorsese, with uh, Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. Um, and uh, this movie right now has a 6.8 on IMDb and an 80 Metascore. 
what did you think of the card counter? I was not a fan of the card counter. And um, I think it all starts with the screenplay of this movie. Just not good dialogue. There's some interesting concepts there that could have made a really good movie. But unfortunately, I don't think that Paul Schrader has enough vision as a director to pull that off. And the dialogue was so stale and wooden and not very... Um, fully it didn't fully integrate character very well and so this movie just did not do it for me it's one of those that i'd be like are you getting anything out of this <laughs> just doing anything for you um i was pretty intrigued throughout the entire movie uh just because i kind of wanted to see where it was gonna go and i just feel like it didn't tie the pieces together very well um, and that to me was a little bit problematic. Um, Tiffany Haddish, who is one of the leads in the film is not very good. Uh, I think that this just isn't the type of role that she should be in. Um, and because of that and because of a weak screenplay, uh, the chemistry just wasn't quite there to make this film work. Um, and I feel like there is some wasted talent. Uh, from Oscar Isaac, who is, I think, a pretty dang good actor. Uh, he had his moments in this, but he was held back by by the script. Ty Sheridan was wasted. Willem Dafoe was wasted in this. Um, they, they just are better talents than uh, what we saw play out on the screen. Um, and it's a little disappointing. I, you see a movie get... Decent reviews. I mean, a 6.8 and 80 Metascore, they're, they're nothing to kind of just ignore. Um, so I had high expectations for this, and ultimately it ended up being just a, a mess to me. And uh, I ended up giving it a 6, um, but I think that's a pretty generous 6. Uh, I, I think that it, there are just enough, kind of like a net, there are enough little pieces that uh, I could kind of... Um, pulled some positives away from that it, it allowed me to uh, give it that six score. And I gave it a five because I just was not enjoying myself during this movie. Um, so that was The Card Counter. Um, another bigger movie that came out this week is called Queen Pins. And Queen Pins currently on IMDb has a 6.3 uh, IMDb score and a 42 meta score. Um, this is a comedy, uh, like a crime comedy movie that stars Kristen Bell, and uh, it follows a pair of housewives um, that create a $40 million coupon scam. Um, seems like it could be kind of a fun concept, uh, but based upon the reviews, it's the sort of movie that I may only watch down the line if it's a Saturday night. It's on a streaming service, and I just want something that's sort of mindless to watch. Uh, I do really like Kristen Bell. Um, I think she's funny. I think that she's really good in these types of roles. Um, but overall, this one kind of seems like it might be a bust. Yeah, comedies just don't do well today. It's not... I don't think that there's anything... Uh, that's specific. I mean, maybe this comedy would do better in a different time period, but I just don't think that audiences are priming to see you know, a uh, funny movie right now. And maybe there's, they need to change up the formula a little bit. 
because just there hasn't been a big comedy that's done really well recently. Well, yeah, and I think that they there's just kind of this rehash of the same old shtick yeah. almost every single time, and people want something that's original. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just harder to hit that originality when it comes to comedy. Um, it, doing comedy takes a lot of risk, mm-hmm. and uh, it, in a way, I almost feel like. Um, Comedy, good comedy can't just be straight comedy anymore. There has to be something more to it right. in order for you to really buy in. Because yep. um, people just, they don't want to just watch stupid. Right. <laughs> and uh, there are some people that obviously do. Um, the other thing about comedy is that you kind of have this wide range of what constitutes comedy. Uh-huh. And people like different things. And so uh, it's almost a shot in the dark anytime that you watch a comedy, regardless of what the reviews are, whether or not that is going to tap into um, what you like Mm -hmm. in a comedy. Yeah, and I think maybe the best comedy writers have moved to television more fully. It just, I don't know, like it's, it'd be cool if there was a really good comedy that came out, you know, again. And I'm, I'm trying to think of the last straight comedy that was really good, but I don't know. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, they mo and like we said, they mostly have other elements in there that that tap into kind of some more serious type yep. issues. Um, like we think about this year with uh, "Don't Look Out Up" coming out. Um, clearly, going to be a comedy, but it's going to have undertones that are quite serious, and so it's almost as if. It has to be satire yep. in order for it to be successful, and it can't just be a goofy comedy um, like it maybe used to be able, like the the old days with like Steve Martin making straight up comedies, and even like the last ten years with Will Ferrell. I think like the Will Ferrell shtick is is running out. Yep, yeah. is long past gone. So. Yep. Um, in the Adam Sandler stuff, and yep. yeah, just that, and I think those actors realize that they're not as interested in making those types of movies anymore, right? Um, just because maybe it's not enjoyable for them. So you see a lot of these comedic actors trying to tap into doing more dramatic stuff. Uh, anyway, I I suppose that's kind of a weird conversation to be having about a movie that didn't have overly high expectations mm-hmm. in Queen Pins. Um, in fact, I hadn't even heard of it until I looked at this week's slate. But, uh, yeah, comedy. Um, something that maybe down the line I'd be interested in uh, doing a little bit more of a deep dive into comedy and kind of what makes something comedy versus, uh, you know, that more dramedy, mm-hmm. as they say. Yep. Um, okay, there are three documentaries that came out this week. Uh they, they all kind of range in uh, likability from folks. So The Alpinist, which has an 8.4 on IMDb and a 64 Metascore. The Capote Tapes, which is has a 6.9 on IMDb and a 62 Metascore. And then there's Fauci, um, which has a 2.1 IMDb score and a 69 Metascore. Uh, this kind of comes back to... We've talked about this in the past, that documentaries generally are hard to gauge um, in terms of the way that people react to them, because they often are controversial. And 
there are folks that before they even watch the movie, or maybe they didn't watch the movie, automatically rate things lower or higher based upon your beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, so a movie like The Alpinist, which to me kind of looks like a knockoff of Free Solo, uh, but seems to be getting pretty good reviews, that's going to be a little less controversial and something the type of person that's going to see that movie is probably going to find some enjoyment out of it, which is why you have that higher score. Uh, the Capote tapes, more of just a historical documentary that kind of taps into um, some more information about Truman Capote uh, that maybe hasn't been seen up to this point. Uh, I think this could be a very interesting uh, documentary and something that I would be very interested in watching at some point in time. I'm not going to rush to go see it at this point. But uh, my hope is to eventually see this. And then Fauci, which obviously is going to be a controversial film. Uh, You can see that based upon what the IMDb score is versus the meta score. When you have that big of a um, difference in scores, you know something is up. And uh, clearly that, that... IMDb score does not actually dictate the quality of the film, and it's a bunch of folks that absolutely hate Dr. Fauci and (laughs) decided to just go in and rate it as a one. Well, and the thing that's so frustrating is, like, it's just indicative of how people, I mean, I bet a lot of the people that rated it a one don't really even know who Fauci is, or, like, maybe they know who he is, but they're not, like aware of what he actually has done and anything. And it's amazing that we are at a point where this person is just part of the government who's really there to just be like help in the situation that we're in is become such a vilified like character in this story of the pandemic, you know? And like, who would have thought that this guy who seems pretty, I mean, not much of what he says seems that controversial. And I think maybe he's gotten a little bit more controversial just from the standpoint of he's probably, I think he's frustrated with just how people have responded to him and he's gotten death threats. <laughs> like he's, his family's gotten death threats. And so yeah, it's, it's a, just kind of amazing where we're at with it. I, I don't know if I have a super strong desire to watch the doc- documentary, and I don't know if I have a super strong desire to watch the other two, but I don't know. I'm always interested kind of just to follow the story around a documentary, and I tend to go more towards dramatic films, fictional films more often anyway, but if you know, if I hear more buzz about this stuff, I'll probably check stuff out. You know? Yeah, Fauci is the type of documentary that uh, I'm interested in, but... A lot of what I am going to get from it is kind of stuff that I have lived with for the last two years. And so diving into that isn't of interest to me right now because I'm trying to somewhat avoid the the harsh political climate that we, we currently are in. Yeah. And so, uh, if I'm going to sit down and watch something to learn or, uh, for enjoyment purposes, um, it's probably not going to be this documentary. Um, I sort of 
have to have a wish of uh, being miserable for a little bit to uh, sit down and decide <laughs> to decide to watch this documentary in this moment in time. Right. Uh, maybe and, maybe three or four years from now, if the pandemic isn't as prevalent right. in our lives. Might be an interesting thing to revisit at that time and kind of almost look at it from a little bit of an outsider point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but still understanding everything because we lived through it. Yep. Um, but I think that uh, docu- I, I love documentaries, and I know that I love documentaries probably a little bit more than you, Danny. Um, and... That's okay. I just, I, I think, uh, that the key to a good documentary is telling a story that we haven't heard yet. And that is intriguing and kind of gives us a look into a perspective that we are either blind to, or that we just don't know that much about. Um, and I think for, the story about Dr. Fauci, it's just not something that I am that curious about at this point in time. Um, so we'll see. We'll see where that goes. All right. The last two, um, I think, are kind of intriguing. Uh, one is called Kate, and this is Netflix release for this week. Stars uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Woody Harrelson. And it is a, about a female assassin. Uh, who has 24 hours to get vengeance on her murderer before she dies. Um, so that's an intriguing plot line. This has a 6.4 on IMDb and a 46 Metascore. Uh, probably the sort of movie that I am going to skip, um, but uh, I, I do kind of appreciate the concept. Uh, I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Woody Harrelson are good people to have kind of as the leads of a movie. Um, but, uh, I, I think I probably will never end up seeing this movie. Yeah, I probably won't see this. It, it does open up the conversation of, I think, Mary Kate, uh, Winstead, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, yeah. sorry. Uh, I think that she is, um, maybe a sort of underrated potential action star. She is, like, maybe in the same category as a Sigourney Weaver. Like, she, maybe she's even gonna be playing somebody in like an alien type I, I maybe saw something about that but um i don't know i i kind of wish that i saw her in more stuff because I, I do like her as a as a um actor and she just is able to pull pull it off you can buy that she would like be able to do all of the things that you see her do in an action movie so i don't know we'll see we'll see yeah, there was a period of time where it felt like she was going to be a really big deal, mm-hmm. um, and then it kind of uh, just fell off, and she hasn't really made a bunch of stuff as of recently that has been seen by a lot of people, um, and so maybe she is coming into a period in her career where she's going to start doing more stuff. Um, she may need to kind of reinvent herself in order to start getting some bigger roles, mm-hmm. but... Um, I I presume that generally Kate is going to be a considered a flop. Yep. Um, in terms of how much, uh, how many movies Netflix is releasing, I'm guessing that this isn't going to be one of their top movies of the nope. year. Um, so I think that says about what we got to say on Kate. Um, the last movie I am very intrigued by. It is called Language Lessons. 
And this has a 7.5 on IMDb and a 68 Metascore. Uh, this is Mark Duplass, and it's written by Mark Duplass and Natalie Morales. They both star in this. It seems like this is a a uh, pandemic film um, that was made during the pandemic uh, between these two kind of writer actors. Natalie Morales also uh, directed a film that came out earlier this year called Plan B which was actually a, a pretty decent comedy. If we're talking about comedies earlier, uh, I, I feel like that kind of taps into um, comedy, kind of where we're at right now. Still has some more serious undertones, and I think that that's why it worked. Uh, but language lessons, I presume, is going to be a pretty decent movie. It's not going to be the best movie we see this year, but uh, from... What I have seen from Mark Duplass in the past, uh, generally his movies are pretty good. Yep. Um, and so this is a movie about a Spanish teacher and her student that develop an unexpected friendship. And it seems like they are uh, having these Spanish lessons over Zoom. And so I, I presume with the pandemic being the way that it, it was, I guess I'm guessing that plays a role in all of this. Mark Duplass is like kind of a quintessential indie filmmaker, and you have to respect that he just is, makes what he wants to make. He could probably step up into a different level if he really wanted to, but I think he kind of likes the control he has in making. He's done Creep, which was like a really interesting horror movie, and definitely a different type of horror movie than we've seen, and. Um, Safety Not Guaranteed was also a really interesting movie that he at least wrote. I don't know if he directed that one, but, but he was in it. He was in it too. And um, yeah, I, I am intrigued by this movie. Probably not at the top of mind for me right now, but I'll check it out. Yeah, I think this is the sort of movie that uh, at some point in time, I'm hopeful that it kind of uh, sneaks in and I get a chance to see it. Um, but like Danny said, that there's a lot of other movies that I'm prioritizing above it right now. Um, and I just kind of hope that eventually I do get to see this one because I think that it, it sounds interesting and that it could be a fairly heartfelt film. Um, it's a little different than a lot of movies that it may be similar to. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that wraps up our conversation this week on the new movies that are coming out. Um, next week we will be returning back to doing reviews of movies that are in the theater. And so, uh, now that we kind of, uh, have had an opportunity to, uh, do these West Marathon, or this West, this West Marathon, this <laughs> West Anderson Marathon films, um, we're going to kind of move focus back here over the next few weeks to uh, the the new movies that are coming out. Um, and then we'll, we'll hit Isle of Dogs before we get to the release of The French Dispatch in October. Um, but yeah, there's going to be a lot of big time movies that we are pretty excited about coming out in the next few weeks. Before we get into our review on the Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, I would like to have a quick conversation on the Venice Film Festival. I know on last week's episode, we did talk a little bit about some of the movies that were being 
reviewed and seen at both the Telluride Festival and the Venice Film Festival this week. Uh, the Toronto Film Festival opened, um, so we're in the middle of festival season. But the Venice Film Festival wrapped up yesterday, and uh, they gave out some awards, which I think is always interesting because I think it positions um, it positions films in a place where. Uh, they may get a little bit more award buzz if they have those Venice Film Festival awards attached to them. Uh, last year, the film that won the top prize, The Golden Lion, at the Venice Film Festival was Nomadland, which we now know went on to win uh, Best Picture. Um, two years ago, Joker won the top prize, went on to get nominated for Best Picture. Um the year before, I believe, Roma won, and that also went on to get nominated for Best Picture. And then the year before that, The Shape of Water won, and uh, that went on to win Best Picture. Mm -hmm. So they've had a good track record over the last um, so many years in the winner of the Golden Lion being a Best Picture um, platform or kind of jumpstart for these films to maybe pick up enough steam. But the interesting thing is the movie that won this year has not really see, received any awards buzz. And frankly, I don't know a lot about it. And it is the film Happening by Audrey Dewan. And uh, it has sort of continued this, this trend of women being um, really recognized for their work in... Um, in cinema and uh, from everything that I have sort of read about it it's probably more in line with uh, Titan which won the top prize at Cannes um, where it's maybe not the most accessible film uh, but uh, it is being recognized for um, just the quality of film that it is and not because it's extremely accessible um, so I think that there's a good chance that this year the trend of the Golden Lion winner being a Best Picture nominee is probably over. But I think it's intriguing nonetheless, and it makes me interested in seeing this film because it did win this prize. Right, and the other thing that you have to think about too is that those past winners also had quite a name for themselves too already. Without, I mean, I mean Chloe Zhao is maybe not didn't have a big name, but she she was, was an up and coming. Yep, and. But Alfonso Cuaron, yep, definitely Guillermo del Toro, also already kind of a vetted director, and then Todd Haynes, who yep. was kind of making that jump over. Yep. So, um, yeah, I think the biggest thing that it has against it, unfortunately, for the Academy Awards, and I, I don't. This is, I think, a sad thing is that it's a, a foreign film. I think that ha that is an issue, even though Alfonso Cuaron. His was a foreign film, I think, because he had gravity. He was coming off of gravity at the time. That was a jump start for him. Um, but then also, this is not a, a huge name director. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's that's what's going to hold it back. But it will be interesting. I, I want to see this movie. I don't know anything about it, really. Um, I think it will be interesting to see because I'm sure it will be in the foreign film yeah uh, it without race. it without a doubt it will at least be one of the major considerations yeah. for that um 
one thing that I saw uh, somebody had posted on Twitter yesterday about how they found that it was interesting um, because both this film and Titan are movies about uh, females that kind of control their own lives mm -hmm. and have that control over their own lives. And it, given the uh, landscape that we are seeing here in the United States, even though these are foreign films, it's a little bit interesting to have yeah. that kind of play into that narrative of women and having some autonomy over well, themselves. And, and then, then maybe that's another reason why we need to give it even more consideration is do we feel like there, we're in such a moment in the United States right now that this movie, movie does really speak to us right now and what's going on? And again, I don't know a whole lot about what the movie's about, but um, if, if that's a core theme about women having autonomy over the, their life and their choices, then that is a really interesting movie for this moment yeah and it very well could play well to the academy with that being said um obviously I, it doesn't seem like this i don't know that this movie has anything to do with the abortion issue um but there is a section of the academy that won't even watch a movie if it uh, has anything to do with a pro-abortion standpoint yeah. um and that has hurt uh, movies that are very much about abortion in the past Yep. Um, and so there, there are folks in the Academy that, uh, if there are movies that are being kind of lifted up as being a very pro, um, women message that mm -hmm. they, there may be some pushback. And I think that you maybe ran into that a little bit with promising young woman last year, mm -hmm. made it in obviously, but I think that it had some hurdles to cross that it, it just was never going to be able to. To cross because uh, the academy isn't as progressive as it could be, mm -hmm. and there are still some more conservative, older members that aren't interested in these hot button topics being uh, sort of dissected in film. The only other thing I was going to say about this, and this is just a general comment about foreign films, is this is the type of movie that I might not see until after I've seen a lot of the stuff that I'm anticipating. Uh, already for this year and ones that are going to get probably wider th theater releases in the United States. And it's too bad because last year, first of all, last year wasn't a terrific year for movies, I would say. And uh, a movie that would have been on my top 10, but didn't, wasn't included because I didn't see it until much later was uh, the um, movie from Denmark the uh why can't i think of it with mads mickelson another round yep another round and uh i think that movie may have been at the top of my list for movies from last year but it wasn't included because i saw it much later so it is kind of too bad that these movies don't get as much attention because they're i mean they should be in the conversation because they're some really great filmmakers across in Europe and Asia, and Africa, even too, and Middle East. So it's just, we don't hear about that as much here. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that I'm most excited about for us kind of diving into some more of these film festivals and shining a spotlight on these, these movies that typically, if we're not paying attention, never end up, uh, in a place that is easy for us to access. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I think that that's a cool aspect of us being more focused in on film festivals. But also, uh, I think last year maybe started to turn the tide a little bit. And we're going to start to see more of these films be picked up by streaming services mm. uh, because they know that they're not the type of movie that are going to they're going to be able to put in the theaters and make a bunch of money on. So they're more likely to sell these movies to the Hulu's and the Netflix and those types of streaming services because those movies are going to get seen and they're going to make a, a uh, some money off of it. And so I'm hopeful that. Uh, by the time we get to the Oscars, that a lot of these move these foreign films that uh, are in the conversation for best international film or even potentially a best picture nominee, mm-hmm. um, that we get to see them prior to the the award ceremony. I think last year Hulu ended up getting all of the foreign or the international films, but it wasn't until after the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that's still pretty cool, though, because that means that people can see those movies um, and they should be seen. There's some really interesting perspectives that in they I think they make cinema that's very different than our American cinema mm-hmm. uh, that uh, kind of have different tone and are looking at issues that we don't always look at here in the United States. Right. Um, which I think kind of leads us in nicely to. The next award that was given out, which is kind of the runner-up award, it's the Grand Jury Prize um, that they give out at the the Venice Film Festival, and they gave this to The Hand of God, which has already been picked up by Netflix, and if if you're kind of following the narrative, a lot of people think this has a really good shot at not only being nominated for Best International Film, but potentially winning uh, best international film. This is Paolo Sorrentino, uh, who is the director of this film, and he it has been a uh, Academy of Friend Academy friendly director uh, when he won best international film for The Great Beauty back in 2013. So he already kind of has an idea of what the Academy likes. That makes me believe that this film is going to be a on kind of the front runner list for films that will get nominated. It seems like a pretty simple concept, uh, just about a boy that's going through, um, that's living through just some tumultuous uh, issues in Naples in the 1980s. Um, so I'm very intrigued by this. The fact that it's going to be on Netflix um, probably sooner rather than later is uh, exciting to me because that means it's something that I will end up seeing. I think that the cinematography looks pretty good in this movie. I don't know a ton about it. I heard, I was listening to a film podcast earlier this week, and they were saying that um, this was a, a, I don't know if they saw it, but they heard there was buzz about it at Telluride too. And so that's exciting. Yeah, I, I always love when there's kind of these films that we don't have the buzz for leading uh-huh. up to a certain point, and then all of a sudden that buzz is there, and it's something to get excited about that we didn't really have on our radar prior to that. I mean, mm-hmm. not that we are desperate for stuff to be excited about, yeah. but just the more stuff there is, the more yeah. excited I get, um, and maybe get a little overambitious with <laughs> what I can see. Uh but this is a year where we're going to have a lot of stuff to see, and I hope that we get a chance to see most of it. Yeah. 
Um, the Best Direction Award went to Gene Campion for The Power of the Dog, and I think this is really exciting uh, because it, it starts to back up what we have already heard about this film in that it is a great uh, vision, and I think that that puts her in a very good place to get nominated for Best Director at the Oscars, um, but for this film also to get a bunch of nominees uh, and this is also a Netflix film, and so uh, we're going to get to see this at home, and uh, it pretty much guarantees our chance to actually see this movie almost immediately when it comes out. The other thing that I found out about Jane Campion recently is that this is the first movie that she's made in over 10 years, Yeah, and I think that is also a, another factor playing into her being recognized. Not saying, I don't want to take anything away from, because I haven't seen it yet, but I imagine this is a really well-directed movie. But I think on top of that, there's the idea that like people are celebrating that she's back to make a movie of this caliber too. And so I think that's that's a kind of an exciting aspect of this. I agree. I agree with that sentiment. And um, I think that, yeah, that excitement around... The, the film, I think that there is definitely a push to be more inclusive and make sure that we are recognizing women directors when they make fantastic cinema. So that's going to help, I think, with the buzz a little bit. And Netflix has proven that they are able to really push um, a lot of films. They're very likely to have a bunch of nominations. The question is whether or not they can get a bunch of wins this year because they have yet to really prove that they know how to close out campaigns and uh, in and have a bunch of winners. Mm-hmm. Um, the last film that I really want to talk about here is also a Netflix film, and uh, this is The Lost Daughter, uh, which is Maggie Gyllenhaal's uh, directorial debut, but she was also the screenwriter for this this uh, adapted screenplay, which she won Best Screenplay at the Venice Film Festival for. Um, once again, another woman uh, that Venice clearly decided this year they were interested in um, recognizing a wide range of filmmakers that probably haven't been recognized in recent years. And, uh, and I think that is really interesting to think about. Um, I'm excited for... This movie and like I think Maggie Gyllenhaal, I've always liked her as an actor, and I know that she has a pretty strong theater background, and that's exciting to me because it makes me think of like Greta Gerwig, who is also an actor who had strong theater background, and how she has transitioned into becoming a filmmaker. Greta Gerwig is a person that I don't care what she's making; I'm excited what she's gonna make. So if Maggie Gyllenhaal can have that same trajectory that would be really exciting yeah i agree um this is a movie that i think it could play spoiler we talked about our top 10 lists last week Mm -hmm. um and what we think is going to get nominated it would not surprise me at all to see this movie get a bunch of nominations uh including a best picture nomination and so uh this is definitely a movie that's on our radar and because it's going to be on Netflix, it makes it even more intriguing um, because we know it's going to come to us mm-hmm. and that we're going to get a chance to see it. Um, and I think that that 
that kind of word of mouth also is going to play a huge role in its ability to maybe gain some traction as we head into award season. I think this is going to be maybe a marriage story caliber movie, which I loved a marriage story. Yes. I'm not saying I'm going to love it, just, but I'm just saying the, the kind of role it plays within the Oscar conversation. Marriage Story didn't get a ton. I mean, it got nominated, but it didn't get a, any major awards, I don't think. And yeah. so um, I could see that happening with this. I, I could see the same thing. And I think that for a directorial debut from uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, just kind of getting to be put on that, that level uh, could be a really good... I guess jump start for her as she's looking to maybe start a career in directing and writing. Um, so pretty cool. I think we're, we'll keep our eye on this and see what happens uh, with the lost daughter. Um, so that wraps up our first segment of today's show. When we come back from this break, we are going to be talking about the grand Budapest hotel, which is the eighth installment in our Wes Anderson marathon. So stay right there. And we are back and we're looking at Wes Anderson's eighth film in our rewatch of the Wes Anderson movies. Um, we are now at the Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, I'm pretty excited to talk about this one today. Going into our review of these movies, this is the one that stood out to me as being kind of a top tier Grand Budapest Hotel, some kind of talk or uh, movie, and so I'm excited to kind of have that conversation about where we feel like it stands after watching it. Um, our summary: This is taken from IMDb. Um, this movie recounts the adventures of M. Gustave, played by Ray Fiennes a legendary concierge at a famous European hotel between the wars, and Zero Mustafa, Tony Revolori, the lobby boy who becomes his most trusted friend. The story involves the theft and recovery of a priceless Renaissance painting and the battle for an enormous family fortune, all against the backdrop of a suddenly and dramatically changing continent. Um, so that kind of gives us an idea of what this movie is, and that's from the studio, the production, um, telling us that's kind of our, our, our background for this. So, and so this is the first movie of Wes Anderson's that Roger Ebert didn't review because he passed away in 2013. But I would imagine that based on some of the reviews that he had, this would have fallen in line with uh, the stuff he really liked from Wes Anderson. But in replace, uh, in the place of uh, the Roger Ebert review, I have one from A.O. Scott, who's a New York Times um, reviewer and critic. And he says, this is just part of his review. The Grand Budapest Hotel, Mr. Anderson's eighth feature, will delight his fans. But even those inclined to grumble that it's just more of the same patented whimsy might want to look again. As a sometime grumbler and longtime fan, I find, found myself not only charmed and touched, but also moved to a new level of respect. So, he was a fan of this movie as well. I want to know, Rob, what did you think of the Grand Budapest Hotel? So, a trend that I am seeing as I am revisiting these films and kind of looking at them through a slightly different lens is that I have tended to 
like things better than I, I did the first time around. And that is the same case here. Uh, in fact, I was very, very impressed with this film so much that I ended up giving it a 10, um, which I do not give that often. But uh, looking at it through just the lens of film criticism and trying to really look at every aspect of this film, it is my opinion that this is a nearly perfect film, if not perfect. Um, and I, I just don't really have anything to nitpick on. I feel like Wes Anderson has, as we talked about with Moonrise Kingdom, has hit his stride when it comes to the technical aspects of filmmaking. Um, the way that this film looks is gorgeous, and uh, I would challenge any filmmaker to try to uh, capture the technical aspects of filmmaking at the same level that Wes Anderson does here in this film. And the Academy felt very much the same way. This film received a, an Academy Award for production design. It received an Academy Award for makeup and hairstyle. And it received an Academy Award for costumes. And so that aesthetic is really being recognized here. And uh, the thing I think that makes this more complex and more complicated than some of his previous films is he has a lot of different locations that he mm -hmm. had to create uh, these sets for and all of them look beautiful they all kind of have a different feel to them and uh, this is really really on display here and so I think that's a good place to start uh, this conversation is really going back to what Wes Anderson's bread and butter is and it is the tone that we receive through these films, um, very much through that that visual aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And uh, before we dive deeper into that, I was just gonna say, for my perspective, watching rewatching these movies, there I feel like I've been a little harsher on Wes Anderson than I anticipated. A lot of these have been um, not disappointing, but not as good as I remembered them being. This is definitely an exception to that. And I, after I watched it yesterday, I was thinking, man, I want to give this a 10. And so I, I sat with it. I'm like giving it a nine for now. And then this morning as we're getting ready to do the review, I was like, I'm giving this a 10 because it is a movie that you can't, you can't, there's, there's not much you can say about it that's bad. I don't think there is anything to say that that's bad. I think it's almost a perfect movie. And there's no, even if there's things that you don't like about the movie, it is a movie that he is in such control of that tone. He's in such control of what he's trying to do. And he does it so well that you can't fault him for anything that he is doing there. And um, I think something that I have been critical of with some of the other Wes Anderson movies we've watched up to this point is sometimes when his humor doesn't work it's because it feels really forced and there's nothing in here that feels forced to me there's some gimmicky kind of like uh directorial kind of like jokes and like re repetition that he does specifically like i'm thinking of the scene where they're 
going to like that where there's all of those people in the robes and they keep having to send the message on and on. And yes. that's kind of a gimmicky little joke, but it just works for the story that they're telling. And um, yeah, I'm giving this a 10 because I it's such an enjoyable movie. Something I also felt like with this time, it's so quick. It is. It is such a quick watch. You don't feel like it feels like it goes by in like 45 minutes. And um, I think that's a testament to the writing of this story is just how tight knit it feels. And there's not a single wasted moment in the story, I don't think. I, I feel like that might be... We can talk about the style and the tone and the story and how those work together. Um, what about this story really stands out to you well i think this is his best screenplay that he has written um it got nominated for best screenplay at the oscars it ended up losing to birdman but i actually think this is a better screenplay than birdman's screenplay um for an original screenplay just because it is so tight but it does some really complex things with the narration mm -hmm. and storytelling where it's layered and uh so we we at points in time see things from different people's perspectives mm -hmm. um, for the entirety of this story. Um, and because it's almost like a historical retelling of what happened, uh, it, it's interesting to kind of like jump down to each of those different layers and kind of see things from these different characters' perspectives. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're right. The pacing for this movie is extraordinary. Um, in almost every other movie he he has made there seems like there's downtime or scenes that go on or are not quite needed mm -hmm. uh that they create some problems for the pacing of the movie and you start to kind of lose that a little bit um but in this one yeah you're right it's just quick it's one thing to the next then to the next and you are engaged in that story 100 percent of the time mm -hmm. um and it there's a lot of heart to this story and I think that that's missing in a lot of his other movies um, because the characters are becoming more likable mm -hmm. as he moves through his career yeah. and they're people that you can empathize with and that you can kind of share in some of these experiences and they're, they're people that you want to root for um, unlike in some of his earlier stuff where it's like they kind of have it coming or they deserve whatever's coming to them in this one uh even though they may have some faults and there might be some problematic things about some of these characters, they still have more to like about them than they than not like. And uh, one of the things that I find interesting, and I can't remember now if in any of his other films he was the only screenwriter, but this film, he is the only screenwriter. Mm -hmm. He didn't have a co-writer. And I think that that probably leads a little bit to it being completely his vision and trying to marry two different ideas is not a problem here like it maybe was for his other films. I think that's a really good point. I think the the vision of this movie is flawless. It yes. just seems completely directed in a clear path. And something that I think definitely the first time I watched it, I wasn't super in tune with and I started to grapple with it more but this time really solidified for me was 
you know, this is, he's basically sets it in uh, a Nazi Germany-esque place. It's yeah. not made up uh, area and made up kind of vilified group that's similar to the Nazis. Right. Um, and, you know, he plays with this idea of, you know, there are, there are still decency in a time where people are becoming increasingly less humane to each other and humane to people that are considered othered in quotations, people that are refugees, immigrants, people that are, you know, different for X, Y, or Z reason in, in Europe to, you know, a non-white person in Europe. And so, uh, I think that was really a refreshing thing to see from Wes Anderson because this movie is, that's like a, uh, a serious place he has not gone to. He he deals a lot with the reality of relationships and issues that people have with each other and personal issues. And this one seems to be higher concept from the standpoint of it's about the way that a physical or a, a setting and what's going on in the world can be so contrasted to who we are as people. And um, the character of M. Gustav is so rich. There's so many idiosyncrasies to him. He is maybe sometimes seems kind of vain and he's there's unlikable qualities about him, but there's certainly things that you respect about him and that he is a decent person that's trying to hang on to humanity. And I think that that this time around stood out to me more than anything else. And that's why I think the screenplay is really pretty strong. Well, and I think something that a lot of screenwriters fail to do, and uh, I think about if I were a screenwriter myself, one of the challenges of um, writing a high-quality screenplay that tackles um, some bigger issues like Nazi Germany, Mm -hmm. um, which clearly this film is doing, is not letting it overwhelm and be the focal point of the story that you're trying to tell. Right. And it's a big piece here, but it's not so in your face that 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 it feels like that is the story being told. Um, It's just the setting. It's the setting, and it makes some of the... uh, messaging that he is trying to get across about this character of M. Gustav. Uh, it, it makes it work um, because of how he interacts within this setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so Wes Anderson absolutely nails it here. Um, and like you can just tell that this movie is a step above everything else that he has done. And you... 100% recognize why the Academy loved this movie mm-hmm. and was willing to recognize this uh, as a Best Picture nominee when they weren't for any of his other movies, despite them being uh, highly crafted and uh, interesting, unique movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that uh, we should maybe talk about the production of this movie just a little bit before we talk maybe about performances yeah. in other areas, because... Like you said at the beginning of our review here is that this is a movie that has more 
like I think sets than any other movie he's done so far and he obviously the Grand Budapest Hotel is a familiar set that we keep coming back to in the story um, but there's a lot of like moving around to different areas within this made-up place and uh, I think that he, he is doing something that it only, it seems like Wes Anderson can pull off, is that these don't feel like, they feel like they could be real, but at the same time, they're so clearly sets at times. Yes. And it doesn't bother me. Right. You know, it is, feels stylistic in the most well uh, designed and articulated way. Yeah. And I think that specifically for this film, because we've seen that obviously throughout his career now, mm -hmm. um, is that that stylist, those stylistic choices about the aesthetic and the way that it looks and how he's not interested in creating a completely 100% realistic place mm -hmm. um, and allowing us to, as audience members, to digest it as, yeah, this is a set that I built and yep. it's going for a very uh, specific reaction uh, this one though is on a larger scale than he has ever had previously. Mm -hmm. The inside of that hotel is a very large scale set design, mm -hmm. um, that he had to create yep. in order to make this work. Um, and that's kind of where I think you have this blurred line between it being a very real place, mm -hmm. but also still being that Wes Anderson, uh, set aesthetic that we are seeing well and the other thing like if we're just talking about the set the grand budapest hotel itself had to be so amazing looking for this movie to really work and yeah. i think they pulled that off so well they made it seem like magical they made it seem like this place that would be such a, a place you would want to go to in that time and even though it's kind of and something from our imagination, it still feels like there's part of it that maybe is grounded in reality. And the other thing that is, he gets away with, with having those kind of extravagant sets is that this has been the theme throughout all of his movies is that so much of them play with the idea of there's a storyteller from the beginning of the movie that is, this is a story. This isn't reality. This is retelling of something that might've right. happened. Mm -hmm. And this is like a double retelling. We we have a two times removed from the story. So that way, when things don't feel totally real, there's that aspect of it. Well, it's like, well, this is just somebody's story. Right. You know, and so he can get away with a lot of things there. Like something that feels so ridiculous is there's a prison escape scene in the movie where the ladder is like the longest ladder in the world. Yeah. And it just seems ridiculous how long this ladder is, but... And it's a kind of just a visual gag, but it is, it works for just the tone of the story because it, it doesn't have to seem real. No, because we just, we know what the end result is. Yeah. That's what the, the, the purpose is the end result. But yeah, once again, this is a story being told. And mm -hmm. you think about uh, any time that you tell a story that you have heard, mm -hmm. um, it's not going to be quite the same as what actually happened because right. it's your retelling. So right. yes, I think that, that it, that's an important thing to recognize. And part of the charm of this movie is that it is now being told through multiple people's perspectives right. and people that weren't actually there. Right. And, you know, that that is a layer to the story that makes it even more complex that 
I would even probably have to dive deeper into to kind of fully grapple with it, but it's, it doesn't feel like it's a problem for me. It just, no, it makes it more interesting. Yeah. Without a doubt makes it more interesting. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think that that's what makes this screenplay extra special is because there is that element, um, in why, in my opinion, it should have won best screenplay mm-hmm. at the Oscars. Yep. Um, let's talk about performances in this movie. Yes. Um, so maybe unlike a lot of his other films, there is a clear performance that this movie gravitates toward, mm-hmm. and everything plays off of that performance. And that's from Ray Fiennes, and this is, I think, the first performance. Well, maybe with the exception of the Royal Tenenbaums, mm-hmm. this is the first performance that truly feels like it should have been recognized. Uh, at, by the Academy as being one of the top performances of the year. And uh, I honestly, I think that now kind of comparing it to Moonrise Kingdom, um, how that's almost a, an opposite mm-hmm. uh, setup where that really relies on the full ensemble in order for that film to work. This one, the ensemble is there simply to support this great, great, Great leading performance from Ray Fiennes, yeah. who's perfect. He is perfect. He is perfectly cast here. He balances the seriousness of this character along with kind of the goofiness of this character, yep. and uh, he should have been he should have been nominated for this movie. It's I, I almost was like baffled by how good it was when I was watching it yesterday because I was like, man, he is making this movie work. Because this movie would maybe have been really bad if if that role was not well casted. Yeah, and like, then it's a testament to the writing, but also I think that he was able to exactly like you said play off the seriousness and the goofiness of the character, and he does everything with authenticity. He's not forcing anything. Um, it, he at the same time as this being like a totally goofy character you could see this person being somewhat real at the same time. And that's that's the thing that's always special about the performances in, in Wes Anderson movies is that they tend to they tend to ground the otherwise kind of strangeness of the story and what's going on in the story. Um, but he is on a totally different level. And I, to me, there's no question this is the best Wes Anderson performance in any of his movies. Uh, yeah, and I agree with that. Um, like I said, he should have been nominated. The other actors that were up for Best Actor that year were Eddie Redmayne won for Theory of Everything, uh, Steve Carell in Foxcatcher, Bradley Cooper in American Sniper, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch in The Imitation Game, and then Michael Keaton Birdman. Um, I think he's maybe better than all of those performances with the exception of Michael Keaton. I agree. I agree that Michael Keaton should have won the Oscar of that year, but uh, certainly Ray Fine should have been nominated. Because, um, yes, you you are correct. This is the best Wes Anderson performance that we have seen. Yeah. Um, and even though he is definitely the center, I think that all of the side performances work. I think Tony Revolori, even though he's not a great actor, he's perfect for this role because right. you need him to be juvenile you need him to be feel inexperienced in a way and it could have been really 
bad having a kind of somewhat inexperienced actor, uh, you know, against Ray Fiennes, but Ray Fiennes doesn't overpower Tony Revolori ever as the lobby boy, He or Zero Mustafa. I think that he they work together. They have good chemistry. They do. Yeah. And that's important here as well, is that chemistry between those two characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah, it works. It works very, very well. And uh, yeah, even though, like we said, that Ray Fiennes is the clear main character, um, at least in terms of... Uh, the screen time that he receives and kind of the focal point of a lot of these scenes. Um, yeah, he doesn't, he, he works really well with the other actors that are around him and he doesn't necessarily, he steals a scene, but he doesn't take away from the other performances around him, which can't always be mm-hmm. said about some of these actors that we, we talk about when, we just gravitate towards them yeah. as uh, viewers and Ray Fiennes is one of those types of actors. Um, but sometimes it doesn't work because they're almost too strong for the other people that are in that scene. Yeah. Uh, and in a way he lifts up those other performances oh. because he's just so good at what he does. Definitely. Um, I'm going to kind of put you maybe on the spot here a little bit. I'm going to tell you mine, but I want to sh- ask you to think of, What's a maybe a totally side character performance in this that really stood out to you? And to me, the one that I'm going to go with is F. Murray Abraham, who plays the older Zero Mustafa in this. And even though it's just a tiny role, ultimately he does the narration. First of all, he's got such a good speaking voice that it makes it this narration really work at times. And then he's got a somber quality to him that was added a little bit of um you know gravity to the movie that this needed especially in the retelling of you know ultimately where these stories lead for his wife who's played by the character or the actor Sergio Ronan and then for how things end with Gustav and the way that 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 is kind of told. I think that relies on him to be to give a good performance. Yeah, I think that uh, I would agree that he has a pretty fantastic performance here, um, and it is understated. And if we are thinking about from the story standpoint, we talk about Ray Fiennes being kind of the main character mm-hmm. in this, but from the story standpoint. This character is really kind of the actual main mm-hmm. character, yeah. but because his screen time is so limited, yeah. uh, it puts that focal point on Ray Fine. It's like a Nick Carraway to a Jay Gatsby he, he, sort of It's situation. exactly like that, yeah. where he's the narrator. Um, it's really most of the stories being told through his perspective of things, mm-hmm. um, but... Uh, yeah, he, it's just an interesting dynamic because of that. And I think that that is also a testament to a really good screenplay. Yeah. Uh, is that they, he's able to kind of shift things back and forth. And um, yeah, so I think that performance is really good. I also think Adrian Brody is very, very yeah. good in this film. Um, it, he plays a bad guy. And he plays it very, very well. I think about this compared to his performance in the Darjeeling Limited, and it's a very different performance. Yep. Um, and uh, I feel like Adrian Brody is kind of a 
uh, under-respected actor, mm-hmm. and he probably has deserved better than he has received. And I don't know why. I don't know what happened where he didn't get better roles um, after he kind of came onto the scene. Mm-hmm. It seemed like he was destined for really great things, and he's kind of just fallen off the map. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's is he in French Dispatch? I believe he is in French Dispatch. Yeah, and it seems, and I know he's in the other Wes Anderson movie that Wes Anderson's making right now or starting to make. And I mean, maybe that's just kind of what his career is now. He just is, works with Wes Anderson, well, and I know he does other things. But the thing about a lot of these actors is that, with the exception of maybe one person in every film, um, it doesn't really give you the ability to truly highlight just how good you are Mm -hmm. um and and so you just don't get enough screen time in wes anderson movies another performance that i just remembered is harvey keitel yeah yeah and uh, i mean he's in moonrise kingdom too and he plays just a bit role in that but this is a very bit role as well and it's just kind of funny to see him in it because he's has his head shaved and he plays this tough prisoner and I just I thought that was just like a fun touch to the movie, and that's the other thing with Wes Anderson is he has big stars in his movie, but he uses them well. Yeah, he uses them well, and he uses them well considering that they get so little screen. Yeah, Bill Murray's in probably less than a minute of this movie. Yep, yep, and same with Owen Wilson. Well, he's a, he's, he's the, yeah, that's right. Owen Wilson's in definitely yeah. I, I yeah. forgot that he's in this movie. So yes, so there's these big name actors that are part of his projects, but then sometimes they're being used in a very small well, role. And the thing that's that's a testament to all those actors is they are not trying to take things away from. They're not trying to steal the scene. Right. They're just playing the role that they need to play. Yep. And. Edward Norton does that too with his his role. He's yep. like a little bit more prominent character, but not a ton. Willem Dafoe does his thing well. Well, Willem Dafoe, I think we should talk about Willem Dafoe because sure. he, in every Wes Anderson movie that he's included in, he plays a very different role. Like, and it's always kind of a, a extreme character. Yep. Like, it's that's kind of what Willem Dafoe does well. Yeah, is plays. Uh, a very caricature character, yep. and uh, that's definitely the case here. Yeah, um, I think that the 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 face of Willem Dafoe, unfortunately, was made to just be villainous characters, <laughs> yep. or people that are somewhat off-putting, and uh, he doesn't say much in this movie. I don't even know if he has, maybe he has like three or four lines of dialogue, and um, but it's his presence. It's his presence and the costuming, I think, is part of that, too, um, that he's intimidating. Um, and the way that they, they shoot a scene in which he's um, going after Jeff Goldblum's character is good. I like the, the part where he takes off his shoes, and so you just yep. see to be quieter. Yep. And I don't know, that, that's kind of a Hitchcock scene, almost. Yeah, I mean, there's very noir feel to this film. Um, at times, yeah. Yeah, yeah, at t- yeah, at times, I'm like, this is a noir like a throw throwback to classic noir type movies. And this is something that we could have maybe talked about with the production. I just want to mention it real quick is the lighting in this movie was on another level too. It's, it's it definitely was. it's because they have extravagant sets, but they, they needed to get the coloring correct on. And so there's the scene where Jeff Goldblum is being followed by Willem Dafoe and they go to that museum and the coloring is so like 
blue and somber looking and that yeah. sets the tone really well and then you, you kind of tr- the story where it's Zero actually talking to the Jude Law character and that they're in the like dining area of the Grand Budapest yep. Hotel that lighting is really good and they even shift the lighting for dramatic yep. moments of the story and the decision to do kind of that last sequence in the train as black and white I think yep. so all of and those are all cinematography moves that I think well, are working really well for the story. And the film is in a different aspect ratio with the yep. with the square the back, yeah. when it goes into the past. Right. Yep. Yeah, which I think was an interesting choice. Um, yeah, there there are just so many layers to mm-hmm. the way that this movie was put together. Yeah. And uh, it was perfect, if not nearly perfect, on every single level. Mm-hmm. And so I just I don't have anything negative to say about this movie and uh i i think that it is more heartfelt than a lot of his other movies which connects with me as a as a viewer Mm -hmm. um and so yeah i this is on a different level than his other movies we've been gushing about it a lot i want to talk about one last thing um in terms of really positive stuff before if we have anything to, to say that's negative, but the score of this movie yes. is really good. Uh, Alexandra Desplat does the score again for this, and um, it is able to get... It matches Wes Anderson's style and tone super well, and it is able to actually help with the pacing of the movie, I think, too, because the music plays a big role in how... We, how we feel the timing of the story is working. Yep. And so um, that was something that really... I mean, I already loved the score of this movie, and I was like, dang, this is a really good score. Well, it won, it won Best Original Score. Yeah. The year. This movie won four Oscars, and uh, they were all for technical aspects of the film, mm-hmm. um, which obviously we, we've been sitting here gushing over. But yes, the score is absolutely gorgeous. I had that written down as something we were going to talk about before we close this out. But I think that, in a way, this is one of the big stars of this film, mm-hmm. is that score. Uh, because, it, like you said, it just it, it sets the tone so much. And if that's not there, this film doesn't work in the way that it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that uh, giving Alexandra Desplat a some credit because this is a very different score than a lot of the other stuff that he does um and it shows just his versatility and his understanding of the directors that he works with and what they want from him you there are a lot of really good composers out there that uh they they're very good at what they do but a lot of their scores sound very similar to one another um, and so it's almost like the director has chosen them because their style fits what they're trying to accomplish in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like a, a composer like Hans Zimmer is very much that way, um, where you kind of have a feeling that this is a Hans Zimmer score. Yeah. That's not necessarily the case here with Alexander Desplat because he he has a wide range of the types of scores that he he does and clearly understands um, what the director is going for in their films. And I, I know that he makes a lot of uh, films with Wes Anderson, um, but clearly that works for them. 
Yeah, and I just think stylistically they're a good marriage of, they just work. They, I think they have similar ideas about the whimsical nature of a story, and his music, I think, is kind of whimsical naturally. He has a lot of, you know, light kind of string sounds, and uh, he uses piano a lot. Not as much in this score, I think, as he does in some others, but yeah, I, I just... It's another thing that we just can't have any nitpicks about because it's pretty flawless. Well, and he's going to be he's he did the score for the French Dispatch. Mm -hmm. um, he also did the score for Nightmare Alley, and so it's going to be interesting to see those two scores next to each other this year and kind of how they differ and how they may change the tone of those movies. Well, and he did uh, the score for Shape of Water with Guillermo del Toro too, and that was a really good score as well. And so I think that you know. There's something to be said. I think obviously a, a, a really good composer can make a lot a, a movie really good, but um, I think that the combination of that director and composer often is what really sells it as like a award win or a Oscar worthy score. And um, I I'm just pumped to kind of hear it, hear what what this next film yeah. is like. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and this year is an incredible year for uh, composers, and yep. uh, there's going to be a lot of good scores this year. Um, but I imagine this is has a really good shot of being nominated um, for the French Dispatch just because of that history that we have seen between the two of them. Yep. Um, I don't like I said I don't really have anything negative to say about this mm -hmm. film. I wouldn't have given it a ten if I did. Yeah, um, and so. I, unless there's something that you want to nitpick on, I I guess it's not really even a nitpick. It, I I think I think this movie could have been longer if it wanted to. You know, if there's other things that it not that it needed to. I'm just if there was other things yeah. it wanted to explore more deeply, and I don't even know if that's necessary because I love the pacing of it. Yeah, but, I think. But oh, go ahead. Like I think you know I would have been fine to like maybe sit with that Adrian Brody character a little bit more get more of their side of things just and not saying that that's necessary i just i think that's an, another area that we could have seen you know yeah uh, th i think that that is a fine critique but the problem is that had he explored some other area it may have thrown everything off right and so what we got because we believe that it is pretty perfect yep uh, any making it longer may have thrown off that pacing mm -hmm. in a way that we both feel like this was very, very well paced and that it was a fun experience. And even though it's uh, technically an hour and 40 minute movie, it did not feel like that. At not all. at all. It just flies by. Yeah. Yep. And I, I think that, you know, when we, that will be interesting because I don't remember how long Isle of Dogs was, but that was a movie that I remember feeling like it felt long. And, um, you know, he has had pacing issues in the past, so I'm just curious to see when we watch that, what that's going to seem like. Do you have a time? Yeah, it, that is about the same amount of time. It's an hour and 41 minutes, so that, that'll be interesting. This is actually uh, one of the few films that I hadn't seen prior to uh, doing this. Uh, Isle of Dogs, you mean? Yeah, Isle yeah. of Dogs. Um, so uh, as we do that here in about four oh. weeks... Uh, 
that is, I haven't seen it yet, so it's going to be a new experience for me, um, which I haven't really been able to have with this with this marathon. Um, and so I'm excited to see it now as kind of the culminating uh, movie that we are doing before watching the French Dispatch, um, and kind of where he has gone from the Grand Budapest Hotel to Isle of Dogs. I also feel like just from what we've seen of French Dispatch, that that seems like very similar in a weird way to Grand Budapest Hotel and just the use of sets and stuff. Yeah. I think the thing that might be missing from it is that core central character. And that is maybe a, a area that I'm a little weary of going into it is I do tend to like a story that's centered around generally one or two main characters and so we'll see how that goes but it just seems stylistically so similar to grand budapest hotel and how they're doing that and i think that it seems like there's a lot of like storytelling story within a story type thing within french dispatch especially with it being about journalism and so i'm i'm excited for that um i am too uh and and we are only a little bit close to a month. Yeah, uh, maybe a little longer than a month here. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's it is here. Uh, yep. it, it's been a journey, but I'm glad that we went on this journey. Yeah. Uh, and I'm looking forward to kind of bringing it all together with yeah. that film. Um, that concludes our our discussion here on the Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, next week we will be doing a review of the Eyes of Tammy Faye. Um, that'll be on September 19th. That show will be out. Uh, then we are going to do Dear Evan Hansen, um, which what, could be an interesting, uh, conversation, uh, on that film for September 26th. And then we will do Isle of Dogs on October 3rd. Uh, and the rest of our schedule will be out a little bit later this month. Awesome. October is going to have a lot of really great movies, so yep. looking forward to it. Yeah, I think in October we'll probably have some weeks where, at least one week, where we release a couple episodes just to make sure that we are covering everything that we want to cover. Um, but it's going to be exciting, it's going to be fun, and I'm really looking forward to it. So until next week, have a good week. See you later.